And so we are, we are in the middle of a of Genesis series, and we're talking about Joseph. We have talked already in the past weeks. If you've missed it, you can go catch up on our podcast or YouTube, whatever you want to do. Joseph was a favored son with a special robe. He was betrayed by his brothers and cast in the pit. But remember, God was with him in the pit. Then he was sold into slavery, human trafficked to Egypt. He worked for a man. He was a slave for a man named Potiphar. But God was with Joseph when he worked for Potiphar. Potiphar's wife, she, it says that Joseph was handsome and she, she grabbed Joseph and she said, lie with me. And Joseph resisted temptation, shrugged off his robe and ran while Potiphar's wife at that moment began to scream for help holding the robe of a slave. She started yelling that he had, he had raped her and then she lies down and she arranges the robe and waits for her husband and he comes home. He finds his wife accusing his most trusted assistant of something terrible. Now, now Potiphar's going to show signs of anger, but I always wondered by the clues in the text, who's he actually angry with? Who's he angry with, Joseph or his wife? And you'll see why in my, because in my opinion, um, Potiphar would not have let a foreign slave accused of rape continue. He could not let him continue in his house. But I don't think he believed his wife's story. Here's why. Verse 19, when Potiphar heard the story his wife told, he says, she said, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. So he took Joseph and threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held and there he remained. In this culture, do you know what you do with the slave who was accused of raping your wife? You kill them. End of story. No questions asked. You can kill a slave for spilling a drink. You can kill a slave because you had a bad day that day. I mean, that's the way the culture worked. Potiphar could have had Joseph killed for, for any number of things, but he knows his wife's character perhaps better than anybody, and he's come to trust Joseph. So the fact that he throws Joseph in prison with an accusation against a high-ranking official's wife of this manner, that speaks volumes to how he sees this situation. That's in my opinion. Now, this prison, it's not common. It's not the lowly dungeon for the masses. This is Pharaoh's personal dungeon where he would place people that, that he was directly angry with. So while it might have been better in some ways than, than the general dungeon, we don't know. This is not a, a country club prison because Psalms 105 tells us in verse 17 and 18, Joseph, who was sold as a slave, they bruised his feet with shackles and placed his neck in an iron collar. So we know he's in chains. Joseph, who'd been making a, the best life he could out of what was left of his life, he was seeing some success in Potiphar's house. And maybe you've been there. Things have broken bad for you, but, but you've regathered yourself and you've, you've started making a life again. And just when things were good, just when he was finding his place, where he was thriving a little bit, just when life was breaking his way, it breaks down completely around him. The rug is pulled out from under him. And life comes crashing down. Joseph is in the dungeon. Neck in an iron collar. Feet bruised from the shackles. All for a crime he did not commit. An innocent man once again betrayed by the malice of others. A man of character whose broken character of people around him failed him again. The dungeons of life. We've all been there. Not a literal prison, although for some people it can often be. It's a place where you find yourself when life breaks bad all over again or when you find yourself in a prison of your own decisions. Shackles, they could be emotional, mental, physical. These are the evidence of your captivity. I've seen restraints on people's hearts that are decades old. 
manacles that were formed in childhood. And I'll never forget, and this was just one example, I, I was talking to this young boy when I was a youth pastor, and he talked to me about the time his dad took him out and sat him down and looked him right in the eye, and his dad said to him, you are that little pebble in my shoe that constantly irritates me through life. And I watched as that manacle, that, that iron collar went around that little boy's identity. Now, I've also talked to people who have stories so horrific that, that being a little pebble in their father's shoe, it, it sounds easy and light. Perhaps you've been there and you've had your identity wounded early in your life by some things like this. And those, those shackles, that prison of identity is something that you know about. Other shackles come from abuse. And I've seen the, the devastating pain of uh, secretive pain of childhood abuse. I've wept with grown men and grown women over things that happened to them 50 years ago. Others of us, we feel imprisoned by our own mind, our own emotions, our own heart. We have a growing pandemic of this nation of mental health, and it's heartbreaking. And it's a place I want the orchard to begin to move into in the coming years. You see, I was 27 when I had my first panic attack. And if you've never had a panic attack, I cannot describe it to you. And if you have had one, you know the torment and the suffering of it. I imagine Joseph in that dungeon. I imagine the bitter tears. Innocent and yet shackled. He used to, at least he had a bed before. Now he's chained those tears he cried once again. Life had devastated Joseph all over again. He was in the pit of despair. Imagine what he would have felt when he heard that collar click around his neck. When, life, when, when my life fell to pieces, I, I sunk into a deep pit of depression. I've been there when, when life is dark, when life is bleak, and even doing one thing just seems exhaustingly impossible. The pandemic of depression has a chokehold on America and depression rates tripled in 2020 and they didn't go down after that. One researcher says that there is one in three Americans dealing with depression and a church this size, just people in the building over our services, that's 167 men, women, youth, and children who are fighting somehow with some form of depression. Now these prisons are real and when you're on the inside, they're likely, they're likely worse than the people around you actually know. Orchard, if any of these life experiences have been something that you've been through, whether something in your past, it could be long ago, it could be generational, it, these, these shackles have affected your life more than anyone has ever known. They've, keep it, they've kept you from living the life that you've desired most. And sadly, some prisons are locked from the inside. Bondage due to the vice grip that vice and addiction has on us. In chains, locked in addiction and dysfunction, the, where the prisoner holds the key and is locked inside with the lock. Perhaps you feel this way today as, as you struggle with your vice. You've been a captive for longer than you'd like to admit and it's taken you farther than you would like to know. Whatever prison you find yourself in, whatever shackles around your life, there is one sentence continually in Joseph's life that we have read about. And I need to read it again because it's right here and it applies to your life as well. So he took Joseph and threw him in the prison where the king's prisoners were held. And there he remained, but the Lord was with Joseph. 
The Lord was with Joseph in prison. Joseph's life had been cast down and, and Joseph's heart was likely in despair. There was one anchor that held him. God was with him. And this is important to remember. It's important for us to remember because it's in our shackles. It's in our our dark places. It's in those dungeons of our lives that we forget most the presence of God. It's in the darkest times that we lose sight of God being with us and for us. The reason is often because we believe our life circumstances are evidence of God's presence and favor say that again. We have often come to believe that our life circumstances are evidence of God's love for us, his presence with us, and his favor. We believe that when life is good, God is good, and he loves us. But when life is bad, we wonder, where is God, and did he, is he punishing me, or he's gone? I want to say something that's not preached in, in some places. I want you to hear this. Your circumstances are not evidence of God's goodness or love or presence in your life. Your circumstances are not evidence of God's goodness or love or presence in your life. There's this growing belief and this growing theology in America that if you follow God, you'll get out of the, you'll be, you won't have to experience the prisons, that you'll be healthy and wealthy and prosperous that God will prosper you if you obey him. Even so far that if you tithe money, God is just gonna make sure that you're prosperous. And first of all, I wanna just say this. If we believe God prospers us if we, when we obey, do we turn God into a vending machine? That if I put in the right amount of money and I push the right spiritual buttons, he will vend me a blessing. It's called the prosperity gospel. But there's some really, something really, Glaringly wrong with it. Jesus didn't come to save your wallet. He came to save your soul. Jesus didn't raise from the grave to make you wealthy on this earth. Now you might be, but that's not why he rose from the grave. I'll go further. Jesus walked as God intended. He did all the right things. He was righteous. He obeyed. He was sinless. And yet he himself said, I don't have a place to lie my head. He didn't get to live out this prosperity gospel. And as far as I can tell, his obedience did not keep him out of trouble, but actually led him to it. But, but that's Jesus, they say. He, he's supposed, that's supposed to happen to him. Okay, let's, I guess let's, let's ignore Jesus for a second, right? Let's look at Paul. Paul wrote most of the New Testament. He traveled around preaching, doing miracles, obeying God, doing these amazing things. Just listen to Paul as he gives an account of the prosper gospel at work in his life. 2 Corinthians 11. I have worked harder. I've been put in prison more often. I've been whipped time without number, faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers, danger from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as the Gentiles. I face danger in the cities and the deserts and the seas. I face danger from men who claim to be believers but were not. I have worked hard. I have worked long. I have endured sleepless nights. I have been hungry. I have been thirsty. I have gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. 
Those are the words with someone who, who walked from someone who walked with God, obeyed God as best he could, wrote most of the New Testament inspired by God, was seeing miracles do, yet we don't see this health and wealth gospel coming through him. And Jesus in 1633 said this, in this life you'll have trouble. That's a promise. We've talked about this. Trouble means tribulation, pressure, and affliction. Now, we may be healthy, and we may be wealthy, and that's great, but you likely still have pressure and tribulation. I, I, I had to say all this for two reasons, okay? Two reasons. One, so you don't fall into the trap of believing that your health and wealth is an indication of God's love for you. Because when something happens to that, what are you going to believe about God? If we don't catch this, then, then when life puts us in a prison or in a pit or, or, or something happens like this, we will be tempted to believe that God's not with us, that God's punishing us, or that God doesn't love us. We'll be tempted to think that God is far from us. Or we have loved ones who, who didn't get the healing that we hoped. Does that mean that God didn't love them? Or he wasn't with them? You see, we are called to... To be a healthy follower of Jesus is to know that God is not a vending machine. We are called to a relationship regardless of the circumstance. Regardless of our circumstance, to love God and engage in a relationship. I'd be a bad preacher if I told you God promised you that you, you wouldn't face illness or sickness or any kind of financial problem if you would just follow him good enough. I see a lot of rich people who do not love God. And I know some people that love God immensely who didn't get the healing they wanted or, and they don't have the money they needed. In fact, Jesus, this is a gospel that doesn't get preached much. Jesus walked up to one man and he was rich and he said, sell everything you own, impoverish yourself, then come follow me. I don't hear that preached a lot. <laughs> the second reason I go into this is for those of you who are experiencing situations in life where you are not healthy or you're not wealthy, or, you're, or you're, you're facing trouble and trial and pressure and tribulation. It's not that God's punishing you. It's not that God's far from you. When we look at the life of, life of Joseph, we see Joseph in the pit. God was with him. We see Joseph in a job in life he didn't want to do with Potiphar. God was with him. Now we have Joseph in this prison in shackles, no freedom. God is with him and God is also with you. In Joseph's story, we see, we see God with him. It's the story from the beginning of the Bible when God was with Adam and Eve to the end of the Bible. What is the primary promise of God's word? What would you guess it would be? Well, John Ortberg puts it this way in his book. The central promise of the Bible is not, I will forgive you, although, of course, that promise is there. It's not even that you'll have life after death, although, although we are offered that. The most frequent promise in the Bible is, I will be with you. Jesus' last words to his disciples, I will be with you always. Why would the most frequent promise in the Bible be that God is with us? You know why? Because we forget. Because when life turns sideways, we doubt because when we're tempted to, to use our circumstances as evidence that he's not with us. Because God knew that this is a fallen world and that trouble and illness and dysfunction and divorce and disease and death and poverty, he knew they would happen. And in all those things and through all those things, thank God he's with us. In all those things and through all those things, thank God he's with you. And today you need to remember this. The same God who was with Joseph in prison is with you. He's with you. He's present. 
even when you don't feel him? Our faith should not depend on our feelings. Our faith should inform our feelings. And faith is believing and standing on God's promises even when I don't feel like it, even when there's no evidence in my prison cell at that moment, even when I'm in the pit, no matter where I am, faith is standing on the promise of God when I don't feel it. Because the reality is God is with you. And I want you to do something right now, even if you're at home, even if you're tagging along with us, I want you to say, say this with me. Say, God is with me. Say it again, God is with me. Say it one more time. God is with me. God is with you in the dungeon of despair. God is with you in the bondage of your past. God is with you in the shackles of the circumstances that are holding you right now. God is, he's with you in the prison that you made yourself. He's with you in the depths of the dysfunction you're in. He's with you. He's for you. And here's something true. God never wastes pain. God never wastes prison time. You see, in my pain, God is often weaving something into me. And in my pain, God is preparing me for my purpose. In the prison, God is preparing you for a purpose. He's working something in us, but he's also working something out of us. God is working something out of Joseph's character here. And he's building something into Joseph that he will need for the future. Now, the young boy who'd tattle on his brothers and, and tell him their, his dreams about them bowing down before him, these things are getting broken off of Joseph. There's things getting broke off and there's things getting built in to the breakthrough that's coming. Back to the text, verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph in, his, in the prison and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. Before long, the warden put Joseph in charge of all other prisoners and over everything that happened in the prison. The warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Did Joseph rise to the top? The only problem now is the top. He's at the top of the prison. He's the top dog in a dungeon. Sometime later, the man who carried the king's cup and the man who break the king's, baked the king's bread did wrong against the king of Egypt. Egypt. Now again, you guys, we just read past this, but if you put yourself in it, you see those first three words are sometime later. Now sometime later isn't a big deal if you're reading the story about somebody in prison, but if you're in prison, sometime later it means a whole lot. Those three words could have been three years for him. Pharaoh was angry with these two important men, the head cupbearer and the head bread baker. These are the chief officials. Now, some tidbits about this. The, the cupbearer is the person most trusted by the king oftentimes. He would tend the wine. When Pharaoh wanted wine, he would have to pour the wine and he would, let no, he would not let the cup out of his sight. And he would drink the wine in Pharaoh's presence before Pharaoh would drink it. All to stop an assassination. You have to really trust that person. Now, the chief bread baker would have been in charge of all the baking, but not just like we think of a baker. Bread had a religious, it meant a lot in the religious way in ancient Egypt. There's evidence of, of bread being in the tombs of these pharaohs. And one historian said that they, they believe that there's regularly baked fresh bread replaced in some of these tombs of the royals. So it's a part of their religious practice too. Two very important peoples, uh, two very important people in, in Pharaoh's court. That's what we need to see. And here they are, they join him in prison. Verse three. So he put them in prison under the care of the head of the soldiers in the same place where Joseph was in prison. The head of the soldiers had Joseph watch over them. 
He took care of them and they were in prison for a long time. Once again, so now we're seeing that this, this is going on. It, he, he took care of them. Now, he was in prison for a long time. What I want us to think about is, in terms of Joseph is this is life now. You know, when you first, something first happens to you, there's always the denial and the anger and the how could this be. But at some point you're like, this is life. And I'm going to have to learn to find some, some sort of goodness out of this situation. I mean, he'd worked for a, as a slave for Potiphar, but now he, he's the slave and he's the head of a prison for a long time. Verse 5. One night, both the cupbearer and the bread maker of the king of Egypt had a dream while they were in prison. Each man had his own dream, and each dream had its own meaning. And when Joseph came in and looked at them in the morning, he saw they were sad. I love this. If you're reading through this and you're putting yourself in it, you see that this Joseph's personality and compassion is revealed here. He's observant. I mean, he's in this prison with these two officials for a long time. He's, he's caring for them. He walks into their cell and they're changed. They're, they're in chains. These two officials have gone from palace to prison. They've gone from the best of food to the worst of food. They've, they've been separated from their entire family and everything they know and love. Of course they're sad, Joseph. Everyone's sad in prison. He walks in like, why the long face? We're in prison. But here's here we see. Joseph, even while dealing with his own despair, he sees that these two people are especially sad to this day. He's, good, he's got a good heart. He has eyes to see people's emotions. I don't know if the 17-year-old Joseph had the emotional intelligence to even notice his brother's jealousy and anger when he told them the dreams or didn't, didn't care if it did make them angry. But this Joseph, we see that he's been softened in some places. Joseph has been to the school of suffering. He recognizes pain. He recognizes the suffering of these two people. Even in dungeons, he's, he says, what's going on, guys? He's not who he was when he wore that colorful robe. So he asked these men who had worked for Pharaoh and who were with him in prison as boss's house, why are your faces, why are your sad faces today? And they said, we had dreams and there's no one here to tell us what these dreams mean. And Joseph said, dreams, the meaning of dreams comes from God. So tell me, what is it? The head cup barrier told the dream to Joseph. And Joseph, as he hears this dream, God gives him Revelation, interpretation. And here's what Joseph said. Before three days are over, cupbearer, Pharaoh will give you honor and return you to your place of work. You will put Pharaoh's cup into his hands just like you did before when you were his cupbearer in three days. In three days, you'll get out of this prison and be back in the palace. But listen to Joseph's next request. But remember me. Remember me when it goes well for you and show me kindness. Say a good word about me to Pharaoh. Get me out of this prison. When, when you get out, get me out. He says, put in a good word for me. Remember me. In other words, Joseph has been kind to this man. Show me a kindness. Joseph was maybe the one good thing in this person's life when they were down there. When you stand before the king, please mention me. Listen to what he says next in verse 15. For I was stolen from the land that I come from. I was stolen from the land of the Hebrews. And here I have done nothing for which would put me in prison. Do you see how Joseph sees his life, his plight? He didn't say I was sold as a slave. I was betrayed by my brother. He says I was stolen. 
And for many of us, we, we, we get this. We get this. And we've had these moments. My life, the life that I wanted has been stolen from me. This is the cry of a person in the prison of circumstance. My joy has been stolen by anxiety. My peace has been stolen by depression. The life I have been wanted, my family, my wealth, my health, my money, my freedom, whatever, whatever it would be for you, my life, the life that I wanted most has been taken from me. The head baker hears this great dream. He goes, I, I also had a dream. I also have one. And so he tells Joseph all the details of his dream. And God gives the head baker, he gives Joseph revelation about the head baker. And he goes, well, also within three days, Pharaoh's gonna lift your head from you <laughs> and put your body up on a tree and the birds will eat the flesh from you. I can imagine these two guys chained to the wall and they're just one smiling and one's like, what? Are you sure, are you sure you didn't get those mixed? Like maybe, I mean, God tells it to him straight. Joseph tells it to him straight the way God had told him. Three days pass. On the third day, Pharaoh's birthday, he made a special supper for his servants and gave honor to the head cupbearer and the head bread maker among his servants. He returned the head cupbearer to his place of work and he put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he killed the head bread maker on a tree, just like Joseph had told him. No, no, no. Put yourself in this moment. You're Joseph. You are Joseph. You're imprisoned, although you've done nothing. You're innocent. God gives you interpretation of this dream, and you tell the cupbearer the, the interpretation. In three days, you'll be in front of Pharaoh. And when you get there, remember me. Remember the kindness I did to you. Three days later, a contingency of the royal guard comes in, and you and the cupbearer look at each other. They call his name. He looks at you and his eyebrows go up. Could it be? Is the, could the dream have been correct? The guard says, the king wants to see you. And the cupbearer looks at you and smiles. <laughs> and you watch him leave as your heart just pleads, remember me. Hope begins to bloom. This is the way I get out of this. He's gonna save me. The cupbearer is gonna save me. And the cupbearer gets raised to the king's side and you remain in your cell and one day goes by. But Joseph, he waits. It probably takes more than one day. Two days, well, he has to find the right time. A week goes by. He will not forget what I did for him. A month. Verse 23. Yet the head cup carrier did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. I'm not sure when Joseph stopped putting his hope in the cupbearer to rescue him, but there was a point. You see, and this is it. In prison, we often place our hope in people to rescue us out of it. We often put our hope in people to take us from places only God can lift us from. In Joseph's case and my own, one thing that was worked out of me during these dark seasons of my life was my tendency to put my hope in people to save me from something only God was going to. I learned something Joseph is learning here, to look to God in these situations because it is in his timing and in his way that freedom comes, which is hard. The next verse says, two full years later, two full years after the cupbearer leaves. Now we're gonna stop right there and pick up next week, but it's been two years. You see, here's what I wanna tell you about these seasons, these times, they always last longer than we want. And they're always harder than we think we deserve. But often, 
It's in these seasons where something's been broken off of us and something built into us that we're unaware of, that we need for what's ahead. So I want to ask you a question today. What dungeon, what prison, what shackles do you find your heart in this day? Perhaps it's one of the ones I mentioned previously about your past and how your identity or your, your self-worth has been wounded. Perhaps it's one emotional or mental that affects you in your presence, your present. Perhaps it's a dungeon you've locked your own self in. You see, God is the God of freedom. And, and as we, before we move on, I wanted to stop and pray over you because he is the God of freedom. And Jesus says in John 8, 36, when Jesus sets you free, you are free indeed. So we need Jesus. 2 Corinthians three seventeen, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We need the spirit. So let me pray over you. Just place your hand over your heart. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray a prayer of freedom of all listening today. I pray freedom over those places in our past where words were spoken over us at a small and tender age that shackled our identity. I pray freedom in those places that your spirit would reveal the truth of who we are. I pray for those, Father, who were abused in their past and that has reverberated through their entire life. I pray freedom in those places, in those dark places where there hasn't been light in decades. Lord, I pray for those who are in present circumstances that they are just captive. I pray, Father, that you would see that you are with them, that you are working in them and for them and, that, and they will not be there forever, that your love is for them. This isn't, this isn't punishment, that this is nothing like that for those in life circumstances. Father, for those in present addictions and afflictions, I pray that you would break those chains in Jesus' name. I pray those chains would be broken. God, I pray for a spirit of freedom in the orchard, that we would be a people who leave this place and go through our life with the identity and the freedom that comes with knowing who we are and whose we are. And for any of you in here today who, are, who find yourself in these places like Joseph is, Know that God is with you. Know that God is for you. Know that God loves you. Know that God is making a way for you in ways you can't even see. And even if you don't feel it, his promises are true and his presence is there. And I want us to sing a song and as we, as we go on. And this song is called Freedom Reigns in This Place. And may we be a people who declare that freedom reigns in our life. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you worship with me the God who brings freedom?